listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Today is the last of the series, of our uh, Christmas series, and it is focused on Christ being seen. We've seen that uh, the hope in Christ, we've seen the peace the love and joy of Christmas, these major Advent themes that have been kind of passed down through uh, history, if you will, and today, the, being the last one, is Christ seen. Have you ever had that moment where you just kind of stopped in your tracks and you go, I wonder whatever happened to that guy? And you're going, man, I remember that person, and... They seemed very intriguing, very mysterious. Maybe there was a certain event or thing that that person was known for. And maybe it was a, like on your way to work or on your way to school. You saw this person consistently every single day or doing this certain thing. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they just vanish and you never knew what, what happened to them. Well, Simeon in this story is kind of like that guy. We don't know anything about him. We don't have any understanding of his upbringing. We don't know really if he has a wife and kids. We don't know anything. And yet here he is thrown in the midst of this story, this Christmas story, after Jesus is born, as Jesus is being dedicated in the temple. He and then a prophetess by the name of Anna just kind of show up kind of like this blip in history. They show up, and then they're gone. And you're kind of like, whatever happened to that guy? Who is that guy? But had this guy had some profound effect in the story and in this unique part of Jesus' early days. And yet, in all the mysteriousness and intriguing nature of who Simeon is, he ends up becoming a credible eyewitness an account to Jesus as a baby, and ultimately God fulfilling His salvation for the nations. Luke, the writer of this Gospel, is a historian. He does a really good job kind of detailing out the, the story of Christ from birth all the way to the resurrection. But he does leave out a lot of details regarding Simeon or even Anna, but he is His focus is not so much on the who of Simeon or the who of Anna, but really on the who of Christ. And so he gives us an account here in the beginning of the witnesses of Christ. Christ being seen in his early days. God doesn't operate in a vacuum. He doesn't operate in the shadows. He's not hiding. He's not playing peekaboo with us. He is actually showing Himself, revealing Himself, showing that His Word, His promises given in the Old Testament will be seen. And so here in the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel, we begin to see the witnesses of Christ. And so we see Christ seen. And so we'll notice Christ being seen in a couple ways in this passage. We'll see Him being dedicated to the work of the Father. We'll see Him as salvation, light, and glory for all the nations. 
And then as we see Him in those ways, then what we'll begin to see is then our own hearts and what they actually reveal to us. So Christmas is not only seeing Christ and what He is about to do, His work and who He is as a person, but it is also going to be revealing to our own hearts. And so let me read for you Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35 in its entirety. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Father, this is your word. This is the truth about Jesus I pray that we would hear Your Word, understand Your Word. Father, I pray by the power of Your Spirit You would give me the ability to preach Your Word. Father, help us hear and understand. Go from this place encouraged and powered to obey. And I ask this in the name of Your Son. Amen. So first, Christ seen in dedication to the Father's will, focusing on verses 22-24. through And so when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, this time for purification, this is 40 days at least after the time of Jesus' birth, and this law of purification takes us back to the book of Leviticus in the 12th chapter. And to put it in summation here, this is the law where a woman, after she gives birth to a child, whether that be a son or a daughter, is to go and be purified, be cleansed, if you will, to offer up also sacrifices, either a lamb or two pigeons or two turtle doves as a sin offering to the Lord. And so they are coming up for this purification. And there is only one here, who is needing to be purified. There's only one here who needs to offer up a sacrifice for sin. And in this case, it is Mary alone. But there's more than 
just atoning for Mary's sin that's taking place in this purification process, we also see here really the presentation of the firstborn son. We see this based out of Exodus chapter 13, that you have this redemption of the firstborn son. That is, you would bring in five shekels to the priest. You bring in your money to the priests who were over these families, over these sons, and basically offering up saying, take my son and dedicate him to do the work of the Lord. This is what you saw back in Exodus 13 where the firstborn sons would be given to the Lord for the Lord's work. And so that tradition carried on in this purification process in this time of dedication. And so you had Mary's purification. You had really the redemption of the firstborn, but then you had the consecration of the firstborn. And you see this kind of this whole process here in Luke's Gospel really looks a lot like 1 Samuel chapter 1, where Samuel the prophet is being dedicated to the Lord as well. Almost very mirroring in this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what you have here is basically, therefore, I have, Hannah said in 1 Samuel 1, I have lent. Samuel to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So this is a giving of my son to the Lord. And this is done after Samuel was weaned, and he was dedicated to the Lord. This is the same picture of Jesus that he was given, not only <clears throat> as the firstborn son, but as one who would be consecrated for the Lord's work, given to him specifically. And this language here, this time for their purification, kind of throws us off. It's written in the plural. And we know that Jesus is not a sinner. And even in the case of just being a baby, he's, we're not purifying Him of His sins at this point anyways. But what we're seeing is that this there could very well mean, be, mean Mary and Joseph. Though it, it's kind of odd that Joseph would be thrown into this though we have <clears throat> very clear understanding that Mary is the one who has to offer up sacrifice. And so they brought him to Jerusalem. Coming to Jerusalem, coming to the, to the temple, was not necessary for this ceremony, for this purification process. But chances are they were still in Bethlehem, not too far away from Jerusalem. And so it would have been a much easier uh, travel and location for them to do this. But I would even say more than that, Mary and Joseph are well aware of who their son is and what their son has come to do. And so taking him to the temple and presenting him to service to God, this is the place where they would want to take their son. They know what has been communicated to them by the angel Gabriel and how he will be God with us, the one who saves his people from their sins. And so they come and present Him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. So this is not as a sacrifice, but a consecration, dedication. Jesus doesn't need His sins atoned for, but He's being offered up to the Father for the Father's work. And He would, <clears throat> verse 24, and they would come offering a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. 
And so if we slow down for a moment and think about this, if you go back and read Leviticus in chapter 12, there's two options. You either come in and you offer a lamb, but if you can't offer a lamb, if you're poor, you then either then offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. And so what we're seeing here is that Luke is not even throwing in the option of lamb. It is very possible that we are dealing with a very, very poor family. A very, very poor family. And so they come in offering one of those two sets of birds. And we know that they're not wealthy at this point. The wise men have not yet come. I know that's kind of the big traditional Christmas story that as soon as Jesus is born, then all of a sudden these three foreigners come in celebrating. Well, that doesn't seem to be biblically accurate. What we may see more accurately is that the wise men come after Jesus is about two years of age. And that's when Herod wants to kill everybody in the region. And so had they come, they may have had enough money to purchase a lamb and not be so poor. But that has not happened yet. And so this family is poor. And one more thing to note here. Mary, the mother of Jesus. She may be the mother of Jesus, but she is not sinless. She has to offer up sacrifices for her sin. And so she will need the same exact forgiveness as everyone else in the entire world. Jesus is the one who stands apart. He's unlike any other baby that has come during this uh, purification and dedication in the temple. Different than anyone who has opened the womb. He is the one who would ultimately save His people and save His own mother from their sins. So what we can see here, church, is that Jesus was born under the law. We talked about this from Galatians. He's born under the law to be like us under the law, except He would not sin. The law would not be a stumbling block for Jesus because the law was a reflection of Jesus. So Jesus would come and He would perfectly fulfill the law on our behalf, making us righteous as He is righteous. And so it's a beautiful scene to behold that Jesus would come even in His infancy when He has no control over His body. He has no way of traveling. He is completely dependent upon mom and adopted father, Joseph. And yet, even still, He would begin His life under the law on our behalf. It is another beautiful thing that Jesus would be the child of a sinner. And yet, He would not sin. Jesus is not afraid, church, to be identified with sinners. He's not even afraid to be related to them. And that is the beautiful, beautiful mystery of the Gospel here. This king of the Jews doesn't just come in on chariots. right? Ad, not even Adam and Eve started as a baby. They started as adults. And when Jesus comes into the world, He could have just come as an adult Jesus, but He doesn't. He comes as a baby. He could have come riding in on chariots, but He doesn't. He comes in in the most poor, humble of families. 
And He comes under the law, subjecting Himself to it to fulfill it on our behalf. And at the same time, this glorious, holy, sinless, perfect God is willing to be born to a sinful mother and subject Himself to a sinful adopted father and siblings. And so while then He was living under the law in relation to sinners, at the same time He was set out in devotion and dedication to do the Father's will from the very beginning. And so I want you to understand, church, that while you and I fumble around in the Christian walk, Jesus is not afraid to identify with you or with me. And also, at the same time, He's not deterred from doing and fulfilling the mission of the Father on our behalf. He can be our friend and also fulfill the will of the Father at the same time. Jesus holds us fast with His salvation. And just as Jesus was seen in His dedication to the Father at His birth, He carries on that dedication today from His throne. It's the holidays. We all have, for the most part, kids. Or there are a lot of kids around us. A lot of kids around us. And if maybe you don't have kids, you can remember when you were a kid, you took that road trip with family. Like, hey, we're going to go... We're going to go hang out with grandma and grandpa on Christmas. Let's load up in the van. Or we're going to go on vacation. Let's load up in the van. Let's, let's go. This is going to be exciting. Everyone's excited, right? And then like seven milliseconds after the door shuts, it's just chaos, right? Like you go from angel and then to like the spirit departs from you and you're demonic as a parent for just a moment, right? And then this rage fills up and you're like, I'll turn this car around, <laughs> We are easily deterred from our mission. And granted, let's just say this openly, kids. That's just a a false threat. We're not going to turn it around because there's more to deal with in turning around and losing our money on a hotel or having to deal with our family and saying that we didn't arrive. But nonetheless, we are willing for at least a small fraction of a second to just deter everything. But Jesus never deters from the mission. We may be in the back seat smashing chicken nuggets in the cup holders, drenching the carpet with Capri Suns, but Jesus never turns around and says, if you don't stop, I am not going to go to the cross. He never does that. He never deters or turns around from the mission. He simply moves forward. And He does it in love and patience, endurance, and with peace. And so we just need to simply give thanks to God that Jesus was dedicated to the perfect service and work of the Father on our behalf and that that work was seen before all men. Jesus began His life to the Father in humility. He would live a life of humility. He would endure the cross with humility. He would humbly provide for us payment that we need for us to be purified from our sin. And then He humbly blankets our souls 
with His Spirit. And His humility then is to be the posture that we have as disciples of Jesus. And I think there is something that we need to recognize in dedicating ourselves to the Lord. And that is the need for humility. The pitfall we often fall into is kind of this works dedication. And probably in the last several decades or so, I mean, how many times have we heard about rededicating, rededicating your lives, rededicating your lives, right? And it's good, it's not wrong, but what usually happens that follows that is some sort of works dedication. Okay, I got to do better now. Like, it's a clean slate now. Let's, let's try hard. Let's do better at what God is telling us to do. But that is all puffed up in pride. That's not, a, that's not formed out of humility. I want to call you to a humble dedication. A humble devotion. That leads you to submitting your entire life, your whole life, body, mind, soul, to Jesus. And to stop trying to do better. Stop trying in your own power to do better and instead lean into the work of Jesus that He provided on your behalf. This means you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can walk in step with the Spirit. You have the ability to do so. So quit leaning on your own understanding. Quit leaning on all the things of the world. Quit leaning on your works, on your, on your false thinking that you can somehow make God happy with you in your devotion and dedication to Him, but instead lean on Christ, who is the only one who has perfectly pleased the Father in full devotion. And so we want His devotion. So let's humble ourselves, repent of our pride, and move towards Christ in that way. So Christ was seen as He was dedicated to the Father's service. And now we will see how Jesus' life of service to the Father displays salvation, light, and glory. Verses 25-33, through Christ's scene is salvation, light, and glory for all. And so there was a man in Jerusalem, verse 25, whose name was Simeon. It's the only time we know about Simeon. As I mentioned, he's just kind of a blip in the story. Here he is, and then there he goes, and we don't know anything else. And this man, though, was righteous and devout. Righteous and devout. Simeon's righteousness and his devotion to God was something that was given to him by the Holy Spirit. It would not be the result of Simeon's own doing. This is something that we have to recognize. All the way back to the Old Testament, up to the time of Christ, before the the resurrection and the ascension, anytime we see righteousness, anytime we see that, it is God's doing, not man's doing. Simeon didn't do a lot of good things that made God really happy with him. God had done a work in him that made him righteous and made God happy with him. Simeon was a man of faith. Just like Abraham and many others in the Old Testament. And if we remember in the book of Romans, it talks about how God, having patience, He endured all the sin of the Old Testament saints until the cross of Christ 
when He would pour out all of His wrath upon Jesus, the sins of Abraham, the sins of Moses, the sins of the prophets, the sins of Simeon would be poured out onto Jesus and therefore they would be justified. And so, Simeon's righteousness, his devotion to God, was bound up in that same faith that would ultimately be satisfied on the cross of Christ. And so Simeon is here, this righteous and devout man, a credible witness, the kind of witness you want to have to baby Jesus. Somebody who is following the Lord, who's devoted to the Lord, who's disciplined in the things of the Lord, who loves the Lord. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That, that word consolation has the meaning of comfort. And this comfort for someone who has suffered, who has been enduring. And in this case, this suffering people being the, the people of Israel waiting for the coming Messiah. And this is the inauguration of the Messianic age. That's what we're talking about here. Simeon is longing for Messiah to come. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who is leading him, who is guiding him, who is directing him. Simeon is not going on a hunch. He's not operating by, on a whim or his own intellect or his own knowledge. He's operating by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit was upon him in 25. And so that means the words that he is about to say are inspired. They are true. This is a reliable testimony that is about to come our way. And it was revealed to him, verse 26, by the Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or Messiah. It's assumed that Simeon is probably of old age. And at some point of his life, we don't know if it was decades before or hours before, God had revealed to him that he would see the Messiah and then die. Simeon would live this life between the revelation that the Spirit had given him about the Christ and the coming of Jesus. And he would live with concrete expectation and hope. It's kind of unfair, right? Hey, Simeon, you know exactly when you're going to die. So you can kind of, you don't have to worry about putting your seatbelt on when you're driving the car. You're not going to die if you haven't seen Jesus yet, right? You do all these crazy things. Regardless, Simeon knew. He knew and he lived with expectation. He was a devout and righteous man. And he came in the Spirit, led by the Spirit. This is not anything extreme here. This is just like when Jesus is being led in the Spirit, led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness, led by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for Him according to the custom of the law, He took Him up in His arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now You are letting Your servant depart in peace according to Your Word. We have no understanding of the interaction here. Like, There's no detail of, hey, he caught Mary and Joseph's eye from a distance and he saw the baby and we don't know how he walked over and we don't know how he asked for the baby to hold the baby. But that's not the point. He goes to Mary and Joseph. He goes to baby Jesus. And he takes baby Jesus in his own arms. 
and blesses God, saying, now I can depart in peace. Like Abraham, now I can go. And that is, the, that is another way of saying, I can die now. Now that I've seen the Christ, I can die. And there is no question in the mind of Simeon that he is holding the Son of God, the Messiah. There's no doubt in his mind whatsoever. Because he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. The salvation is the consolation of Israel. This is the comfort of Israel, that God would save His people. And notice, Simeon is not talking about his individual personal salvation. He's talking about the salvation of his nation, of his people. He understands the bigger vision of God's salvation. It's not just for him, but it is for his people and ultimately the nations. And this is done in the presence of all the peoples. And this echoes what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is not a God operating in the shadows. He's doing it before all people. And this man Simeon knows it. This man Simeon knows his Bible really, really well. And so he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And so this light is salvation. Isaiah 49 verse 6 says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The light to the Gentiles is to illuminate to them that there is salvation that includes them. We've talked about this in the last several weeks on how Israel was being taken into captivity. Judah taken into captivity. But God would not only rescue them, but He would also call those foreign nations into following Him as well. So God is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. For so long, the Gentiles thinking, well, this is the God of Israel. Only God wants to deal with Israel. But Simeon is saying, no, You have misunderstood the Bible this whole time. God is the God of the nations. And He comes to show the Gentiles. And also for the glory to your people Israel. Israel has been God's people for centuries and centuries, right? And so God's Word has been promising to them that a Messiah would come. And so this glory for the people of Messiah, or the glory for the people of Israel is that the Word of God, this revelation, would then be manifested. And it has been manifested. Manifestation of God's Word is the Word made flesh. It's the Word we've seen in John. John chapter 1. So this is the glory of Israel. A new weight of glory that has come upon His people. And His father and mother, that is... Jesus' mom and adopted father, they marveled at what was said about him. I mean, think about it. Here are Mary and Joseph being told God's word by the angel Gabriel and moving through the birth of Jesus, basically watching 
the words of God unfold before their very own eyes and continuing on in the temple dedication. And so, of course, they would marvel at these words. Church, I want to remind you that you and I are righteous because of Jesus. We are righteous because of Jesus. And all our eyes need to be on Him. On Him. If we can learn anything from Simeon, all eyes on Jesus. We've talked about Simeon being really kind of a blip in the story of Christ. No one really knows anything about him except these few words. And yet this man was righteous and devout. This is kind of a struggle for how we live as Christians today. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be recognized. We want to be noticed in our Christian walk and the things that we have to say, hey, listen to how wise I can be with this or how witty I am or crafty I am in in saying these things. My family and I uh, the other day watched the new Spider-Man movie. So let me tell you how it goes. There's a scene, and this will not ruin the movie. There's a scene in there where a character says to Peter Parker, why are you dressed like a cool youth pastor? Just kind of making fun of him because he wasn't in his Spider-Man outfit. And it was hilarious. Everybody laughed. I thought it was quite hilarious as well. But there is something to be observed here. That even the world is taking notice of how Christians are seen and how we want to be seen or how we want to be perceived. Cool, trendy, popular, right? But why do we want to be seen? Why do we want to be heard? Why do we want to try to be stand out in our Christianity? What is it about us that is so amazing that we just have to have everyone notice us? At the end of the day, if no one in Redeemer is ever remembered by name, but only the name of Jesus is remembered, then we have done our job. And I'm not saying we don't have any value or worth or that our names are meaningless, but we are not it. We are not the answer. The way we do mission, the way we do evangelism, preaching, discipleship, our service, our worship, all of it is not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to Christ alone. That is the objective. That is the goal. And so my hope is that we would live our lives proclaiming Jesus and then just simply be forgotten. And why would we want that? Because at the end of the day, Jesus is the consolation of our souls. He's the consolation of our souls. He provides us with the comfort of his light and his manifested glory. Simeon saw Jesus before Jesus could make it to the cross. We see Jesus after the cross. We have a full picture, a fuller picture of Israel's consolation, of our hope, of our salvation. And just as Simeon found comfort in the Messiah coming, then we too are to find comfort in the fact that the Messiah has come, Jesus has come, and he will return. God has promised you and me that we will see Jesus when he returns. We have a concrete hope in Jesus returning. 
So the question is, what is your life going to look like between the now and then? What is it going to look like between now and then? It would be easy to know the hour that Jesus returns because then we could plan accordingly. Well, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to focus my life on Jesus, knowing that he's going to return at this time. What sort of plans would change in your life if you knew exactly when Jesus would return? And the follow-up question is, why can't you live that way now? Not knowing specifically the day or hour. Why do you have to know that specific information in order to live that way now? And I hope that God's word would be enough. That his promises would be enough. The salvation that Jesus brings would be enough. The light of the gospel that we now have would be enough to cause us to live like Simeon, righteously devoted to the Lord, blanketed in the righteousness of Christ, anticipating, waiting for, longing for the return of Jesus, just like Paul. So Christ has been shown to us as the salvation, the light, and the glory of the nations. And when Christ has been seen in that way, then we begin to see something else. And that is our hearts in the final two verses, 34 and 5. And so Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. This is the rising and the falling of Jews as a result of Jesus being the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Talking about the Messiah, ultimately when he comes, that he will be a stumbling to the Jews. He'll be a stumbling to Israel and to Judah because he's calling them to holiness. He's calling them to righteousness. He's calling them to follow the Father. Romans 9.33 says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so what Simeon knew is that when Jesus would come and he would come to his own people, we saw this in John chapter one, he would come to his own and his own would not receive him. They would reject him. And so he would become the stone that they would stumble over, that they would be offended by. And even Mary, his own mother, the mother of Jesus in Luke chapter eight, verses 19 through 21, would find herself stumbling over her own son, seeing that her own heart would be wicked and sinful. And so there's a purpose to Jesus being this rock of offense, this stumbling to his people. And here's the purpose, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the revelation of seeing Christ, that we would ultimately see our own hearts. Jesus was set out on purpose to be rejected by his own people. And ironically, the very place 
of Jesus' dedication, where he is at in the temple, in the court of women as it is known, would be the very place that Jesus would be rejected by the Jews as he boldly proclaims, I am the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. The rejection of Jesus by his own will be the way to the cross. And it will be in the cross and resurrection that many Jews will then be awakened to the gospel. And then that stone that became for them a stumbling or an offense will become the stone upon which they secure themselves in their salvation in Christ alone. Because Christ is seen, that means his light is shining. And where is his light shining? It's shining in our hearts. And so then what is it that Christ is revealing to us about our own hearts? This is one of the things that Christmas ought to be doing is causing us to kind of look inward and see what it is that he's revealing about us. Is the light of Christ revealing to you your falling? And your falling would look like you think you're a good person and that is enough that you don't need Jesus. And when Jesus gets in the way, he just becomes an offense. He's just kind of a he's a stumbling on our path of doing good and doing right. Or is the light revealing to you your rising? Meaning you see that your heart is sinful and that you are in desperate need of Jesus. And instead of Jesus getting in your way and being your stumbling stone, you stand upon him. You behold to him. You hold fast to him. You need him. You cling to him because you can't do it on your own. You know you're not good because when the light of Christ has shown in your heart, you realize you are a sinner. There's nothing about you that is actually good. So maybe this Christmas season, Jesus has revealed that you have either a falling or rising hope peace, joy, and love? And what has God been teaching you about your heart this Christmas season? How might you need to become grounded upon Jesus rather than stumbling over him moving forward? Now, I want you to understand this. You and I cannot change our hearts. We don't have the ability to change our hearts. You cannot make things better. You cannot make yourself righteous. Only God can do that. And he has through Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit, you have the power and the ability to walk in hope, to walk in peace, to walk in love, to walk in joy, and to walk and never stumble. And not fumble and not be offended by Jesus, but to walk with assuredness, steadfastness, a concrete foundation. And I'll say this sternly. If you are not walking in those things, it is because you is because God has not given you. It's not because God has not given you the ability or the power. It's because you are refusing him. You have the Holy Spirit. You are righteous because of Jesus. You have a living hope. But if in this life, on this side of heaven, you are finding yourself constantly 
tripping over him, constantly offended by him. It's not because he's not doing anything. It's because you're not walking with him. You're not walking in step with the Spirit. You're refusing the power that indwells in you. You and I are sons and daughters of the living God. We have the same Spirit that was with Jesus as He came into the world. The same Spirit that was upon Him as He was dedicated to the work of the Father. The same Spirit that was with Him as He grew older and was learning The same spirit that was with him as he began proclaiming the gospel in his ministry. The same spirit that helped Jesus endure the cross. The same spirit that was poured out onto the Jews and then the Gentiles has then been poured out onto us because Jesus died, rose, and ascended back to the Father. You and I have that same spirit. You and I are without excuse. You may be thinking, maybe at the beginning, when I mentioned that person, that where'd they go kind of person, you might be still thinking, man, where did they go? (laughs) There was something about that person that was intriguing, mysterious, caused you to just simply wonder. But what if that would be the story of you and I? That we are here, but for a time and then mysteriously disappear. And not that our lives and purpose are meaningless, but that our lives are defined by who we see and what we want others to see. That we are so fixated on Christ that it becomes difficult to be known for anything else. When your family and your friends, they all talk about you, they see you as righteous and devout focused on Christ. I mean, that is how they describe you. It's hard to describe you any other way. But that's how they describe you. And so I pray that would be our story. That we would see Christ and we would desire for others to see Christ as well. That we would give a testimony to His devotion to the Father's will. That we would give testimony to His work of salvation and glory to the nations. And that as the light of Christ shines, it would reveal to the world how our hearts are now alive and causing us to stand firm and walk unimpaired upon the foundation of Christ.